Happy Friday, and welcome to Pipettes and Politics. This is Ben Korb, the Public Affairs Director for the American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology. And as always, I'm joined by Andre Porter. Hey, how you doing? And Daniel Pham. Hey, everybody. And this is the miracle of miracles, the raise the caps, the government <laughs> didn't shut down for more than a couple of hours edition. Um, full disclosure, we recorded this podcast on Tuesday and have scrapped it all because of what's happened this week, and so we're recording it kind of uh, right before publishing here on Friday morning. Um, woke up this morning, or if you stayed up all night and watched things, I feel bad for you, to the news of uh, an approved two-year budget deal. Now, first couple of disclosures. This isn't an appropriations deal, so all the dollar things that we're going to talk about here are not guaranteed. Um, they need to actually come to fruition in an omnibus spending package, which, as you've seen Congress operate over the past, I don't know, forever, um, you know it's not a guarantee that things are going to go quite as smoothly as it's spelled out in this document. But let's talk about things um, in the broadest terms. First of all, a continuing resolution to fund the budget through March 23rd. So we are not shutting down the government. Um, more than the couple hours that it was overnight because of some procedural things. So the government is operating, and that's a good thing. Congress now has a little bit over a month to come up with an omnibus spending package, which means, of course, they won't start working on this until March 22nd, <laughs> so that they can get it done on March 23rd. Um, they have raised the caps. This was one of the issues that we've been talking about, uh, the need to raise the Budget Control Act caps, which limit discretionary spending, both in defense and non-defense spending. Um, these caps were raised pretty much evenly between defense and non-defense, which is the parity principle that we've been looking for. Um, and our, our partners with NDD United have been calling on for a very, very long time. Um, and this deal is kind of consistent, uh, not exact dollar for dollar, but fairly consistent with things and consistent with the three other raise the caps deals that have happened in the past. So that is a wonderful thing. By raising the caps, discretionary spending uh, on the non-defense side is raised by about $130 billion a year. Yeah, 131. 131 yeah. for the next two years, <clears throat> which allows appropriators now to really have a stronger sense as to how much money they have to come up with full-year spending plans for the remainder of the year. So that is exciting. If you're an appropriator, you know the dollar amount. You've been asking for more money to appropriate, and you know the dollar amount. Um, so that's a good thing. Uh, let's talk about a couple of the mechanics of it. First of all, there are plenty of actually both Republicans and Democrats that complain that raising the caps increases the deficit, which is uh, both true and ironic, considering <laughs> many of those people who are complaining about this extra uh, discretionary spending are, are the same people who voted to support a tax bill that was unpaid for and will add $1.5 trillion to the deficit over the next 10 years. You know, that's it's, Washington. Especially the senator who caused the shutdown to happen, Rand Paul, voted also for voted for the bill, for the tax bill. Yeah. But he was, if I remember correctly, he was a little apprehensive. That's, oh, he was apprehensive. If that's any consolation, he was. Yeah, but they're, they're saying that this new budget bill is going to increase the deficit by a trillion a year. Is that what I've read? Did you guys read the same thing? I don't know. I haven't seen that, although I'm a little blurry-eyed from everything. Right, because um, it's all happened very quickly. But 
I, I guess maybe the this increase plus the normal appropriations for and, the fiscal year. And I think it's in addition that. to the tax cuts as well. Yeah. So, so it's so like a compound thing. But to your point, how you're standing on this high horse after you voted for it? Yeah, I mean, just just remember to spell it out. Um, $1.5 trillion in deficits to uh, cut taxes is okay. Uh, you know, $150 billion a year for defense spending is okay. $130 billion for non-defense spending is going to bankrupt the country and put us into a financial situation we can never crawl out of. Right. So Big government know. is fine if it's military, but if it's cancer research, it's too big. Big government's fine if it's, <laughs> if it's the big government that I want, not the big government that you want. So right. um, all of that aside, and there were look, there were Democrats that also thought that this was busting the mm-hmm. deficit too much. I saw quotes from some House members that saw, thought the same thing. This budget deal did not include an immigration deal for DACA. So, look, there's still a lot of work to be done, let's be fair. However, raising the caps is, as Joe Biden would say, a BFD, that these are done <laughs> and that this has happened. Um, and even better for our community is the fact that inside of the language is a promise to increase NIH funding by a billion dollars a year over the next two years. And importantly, the text that I saw that kind of outlined this explained that this is a billion dollars above the already guaranteed Cures 21st Century Cures funding, which kind of funds specific programs, Brain Initiative, Cancer Moonshot, those sorts of things. So we are looking at the potential and the likelihood of a true NIH budget increase of at least a billion dollars. Um, I have spoken with other advocates and we have gone back and forth about is that billion dollars going to be on top of whatever's in the omnibus package? So the Senate appropriations process for FY18 increased the NIH's budget by $2 billion. Mm-hmm. So is this going to be a billion dollars on don't top of that $2 billion, if that were to be the case? We don't know. We're watching that. We're going to have to keep an eye on it. But um, the bottom line is, is that we, we we got the cap. We got more money, which is needed. We desperately needed. Everybody agrees on And there are some really interesting notes in there about you know NIH and our community. Daniel, what about other... Have we seen texts? Have we seen kind of hints at other science funding that might come through because of this? So there's only been some rumors, maybe, um, about the National Science Foundation um, possibly benefiting. Um, the proposal has um, the House proposal currently has kept the NSF's research budget flat at about six billion, but um, the representative. Um, the chair of the Appropriations Subcommittee that oversees the NSF's budget, John Culberson, said that he would be able to give more funding if the Congress raised the caps. However, that's the only, there's, there are no specifics in terms of numbers. Right. So there's hope. Yeah, and so I think that that's true. Look, that's of all of the appropriations bills, the 12 appropriation bills, um, what has to happen now is this increase in the caps need to be distributed amongst those 12 accounts, essentially. Mm-hmm. And then the appropriations committees need to determine kind of how, where that money goes. So, um, you know, I saw a really interesting analysis by Pipettes and Politics um, guest Matt Hurahan uh, uh, that, you know, these increases certainly will help the science funding community. Um, it's just a question of how much and what those numbers are. Right. We'll be watching that. Um, is there anything else we wanted to add to this? Yeah, and we're still waiting for DOE. Yeah. numbers as well so that we don't know what that looks like so bottom line is this is this is a good deal um it is is it the best deal it might be the best deal we were able to get um it's a good deal it gives us some certainty and ability to plan for the next couple of years which is a wonderful thing um the work isn't done and as good as we're feeling today 
is probably as bad as we're going to feel next week when the president releases his budget plan <laughs> for FY19, um, which we'll be covering on our next podcast. In fact, maybe even a special issue podcast in between as necessary. But that's the budget situation. No shutdown. Caps raised. NIH increase. Let's all pat ourselves on the back. Advocacy works. <laughs> um, outside of this budget issue, um, I know you, Andre, want to talk about a couple of things that are going on at the National Science Foundation. Right. So, I mean, we're in year two of kind of the Me Too movement. Harassment has become not a thing, but a thing that has been getting more attention on the issues around harassment. Let's clarify that. Standing up against harassment yes, is becoming sta- a bigger standing thing. Up not, not I think <laughs> harassment's been around for far too long. Exactly. Thanks for the correction. No problem. I appreciate it. So the National Science Foundation just released a notice, uh, actually a day ago, on sexual harassment and any new awards. So they're requiring all new awards to, one, report on their PIs and co-PIs and any grant personnel that have engaged in sexual harassment in the past or currently. And they're also expecting each grantee organization, workshop, um, conference to now have a... um, policy around sexual harassment and how they're going to address harassment in the future and moving forward. Additionally, the Office of Diversity and Inclusion at NSF has created a portal which you can go to at nsf.gov harassment for any updates on harassment policies and etc. Uh, the NIH, they're working on harassment policy as well. They haven't put out an official notice on what that will be, but their Office of Equity, Diversity and Inclusion has begun an initiative to develop policies and I'm sure we're likely to see that roll out in the next couple of months. Um, the last, I guess, policy update would be a policy statement for the National Science Board Science and Indicators Reports, a report that is released, has been released annually, now it's going biannually. Um, it's kind of just encompasses all the data around the workforce for STEM. So anything from biology to engineering to mathematics, where are people getting degrees in, what are the demographics looking like? What is the job outlook looking like? They released a policy statement that kind of harkens to the base of the new administration where many people were blue-collar workers. Those jobs have disappeared. Where are the jobs going to come from? Where are these people going to be trained? And this new policy statement addresses the quote-unquote STEM-capable workforce, NSF's movement and policies moving forward on how we're going to retrain people, how we're going to... Um, address kind of the shortfalls that may uh, may come from jobs that exist that don't require PhDs or master's degrees or even bachelor's degrees, but still require some STEM uh, experience and some uh, substantial STEM knowledge. So that statement was released last week. New harassment uh, policies released and things seem to be moving forward. And it'll be interesting to see how the workforce kind of um, addresses and how training changes, how many people will no longer go into a PhD, track and move towards a technical degree, how that, it, how that makes community colleges evolve because community colleges deal with that demographic, with the pipeline change. So it's interesting to me. I like the workforce stuff. I like the STEM workforce stuff. Um, check it out. It's a very short policy statement. Um, yeah. Great, and I think that will be linked here um, to the website where you're looking at this and on the policy blog, uh, policy blog, policy.asbb.org. Um, it's a good time for us to take a little bit, bit, bit of a break here. Um, on the other side of this break, we're going to be joined by ASBNB Today science writer John Arnst, who's going to be talking about um, how biochemists can play a role in overcoming health disparities, and this is part of a 
um, a, a piece that he wrote in A Today um, that was in conjunction with uh, Black History Month being February. And at the end of the podcast, we're going to have some discussion on how you can be involved and join us in Washington and our Hill Day, which is in April. So I invite you to stick around for that. You are listening to Pipettes and Politics, and we will be right back. Like this but want more? Why not visit the ASBMB Policy blog, where you'll see news and analysis on all things Washington. Visit www.policy.asbmb.org. Welcome back to Pipettes and Politics. I am excited to have a guest here. Um, with us today is John Arnst. John is the science writer for ASBNB Today. Say hello. Hey, how's it going? Uh, before we go into things, John, are you on Twitter? Yes, I am on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at ArnstJohn. Uh, somebody took at John Arnst and at Jay Arnst, so that's what I live with. That's all that's left. All right, well, uh, be sure to follow John. Um, we invited John here. Um, he's got a piece coming. It's in the February issue of A Today that talks about biochemistry's role in helping to overcome health disparities. Um, and it's part of our Black History Month uh, mm-hmm. you know, features that we're doing this month in A Today. So, John, what did you want to talk about? Okay. Um, so, uh, the feature is about a number of things. Uh, but in a nutshell, health disparities are basically any condition or conditions that affect one subgroup of a population more than another. And um, a lot of those, like strokes, diabetes, and heart disease, are products of inequality in terms of access to healthcare and healthy foods, and inequity, which I'll get to in just a moment. Um, You've also got a small number of cancers, uh, prostate cancer in black men in the U.S., and triple negative breast cancer in black women, where you have those initial factors and also an increased frequency of disease-associated alleles. And um, those disparities weren't really being looked at on a biochemical level until about 20, 25 years ago. Uh, One of the researchers I talked to for this story, Clayton Yates, uh, who's the director of of Tuskegee University's Center for Biomedical Research, said that when he was getting started looking at prostate cancer as a grad student in the 90s, Uh, the biomolecular mechanisms behind that disparity and others weren't really being investigated. And why is that? Um, Well, health disparities research is just a young field. Uh, The NIH established the National Center on Minority Health and Health Disparities in 2000, and that became the National Institute on Minority Health and Health Disparities in 2010 as part of the ACA. And uh, the NIMHD funds a lot of exciting, important research projects about the biochemical and biomolecular roots of health disparities. Uh, Last fall, they announced they'd be providing $82 million over five years to 12 centers of excellence uh, that focus on multidisciplinary research and uh, community engagement. One of those is at the University of Illinois at Chicago, where you have this dynamic team of cancer researchers, clinicians, cardiovascular scientists, public health experts, and basic scientists boiling down the effects that continual violence and harassment have on the health of minority populations in and around Chicago. Now, I'm not going to list all of those here. You're going to have to go to read the feature for that, which is up now on the site. Good plug. (laughs) But uh, one of those projects is examining the epigenetic effects 
of this trauma on the incidence of colorectal cancer in African-American populations in Chicago. And uh, part of that involves a mouse model that simulates the effects of food insecurity and stressful situations like isolation and structural violence. Uh, the researchers then look at the elevation in biomarkers like cortisol and see how those environmental cues correspond to that and to an increased incidence of colorectal cancer. And uh, to get to the meat of the thing, this is one of the ways that young biochemists and molecular biologists can help mitigate health disparities with their research. Uh, that project wasn't born in a vacuum. It's a product of you know, a bunch of interdisciplinary collaborations. And uh, NAMHD is also putting a lot of money into helping train the researchers who make these connections and uh, ask these questions. Uh, in addition to the grants I mentioned earlier, they pledged $122 million over five years to seven research centers in minority institutions, one of which is at Tuskegee University in Alabama. And uh, how does that project fit into the Institute's total funding? Sure. Um, so Clayton Yates and his colleagues there will be receiving nearly $8.5 million over five years to help train minority scientists involved in health disparities, uh, which is absolutely phenomenal. And he has a lot of glowing and powerful statements about that in the full feature. Um, when you add up both of those grant programs, uh, which are both funded for five years, uh, they make up about 15% of NIMHD's budget for 2017, which was $281 million. And uh, to sort of wrap things up, I'll put those numbers in perspective. Uh, $281 million is less than 1% of the NIH's annual budget, which was $33.1 billion for 2017. And that itself, which covers 27 institutes and centers, um, including the heavy hitters like National Cancer Institute and NIAID is just 3% of the federal government's $1.07 trillion budget for 2017. So it's a lot, but it's really just a drop in the bucket. Great. So, John, I have a question for you. You know, in, in listening to you talk about these issues, um, the prototypical kind of stereotypical scientific workforce is stale, male, and pale. <laughs> um, and I'm wondering... Um, as as you wrote this piece and as you spoke to people, um, does the issue and the existence of health disparities help really underscore the importance of ensuring a diverse scientific workforce? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's what a lot of the grant money um, from NAMHD for those RCMIs is going towards. It's uh, going towards helping train minority researchers to ask questions about their own communities. Um, like... Uh, the community uh, around Tuskegee University in the South, you have a very large African-American population. Um, it's more effective if you generally have people that represent those populations asking the questions that matter. Like, you know, what's the reason underlying why maybe my brothers and my father have had way more prostate cancer than you would expect? So, John, in doing the research for this article for A Today, uh, which is in the February issue, people should go online, read it right now, um, read it after you listen, and <laughs> then read it. Um, beyond the example of prostate cancer that you just gave, I'm wondering, are there other examples that you came across that talked about, um, you know, that looked at a very specific segment of the population and found issues there? Yeah. Um, so, one of the projects I came across involves the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa Indians in Belcourt, North Dakota, um, and their elevated rates of preeclampsia. Um, so this tribe has been a part of a research cohort for the better part of two decades uh, that's involved in looking at the genetic determinants 
behind those disproportionate rates of preeclampsia, which is high blood pressure before or after pregnancy um, in this community. Um, this work is being run through Turtle Mountain Community College by Lyle Best, um, a physician who worked with the Indian Health Service for most of his career, and also Crystal Sozi, um, a Native American PhD candidate in genetics at Vanderbilt University. Um, in the full feature, she speaks a bit about the importance of Native American representation in the scientific community. And um, so she and Dr. Best, um, she's obviously come on more recently than Dr. Best, who's been doing involved with this project for a number of years. Um, so they've, there have been papers put out looking at the genetic determinants, and um, there have been risk factors identified, but no like definitive uh, underlying factors in the way that um, has been done for prostate cancer in uh, black men. Great, great. Um, is there, so I think really what we're identifying is, uh, in, you know, I asked the, the question before, um, in, you know, and we've talked about it in this space and we're going to talk about it in future as we look at like things like immigration policy and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. Um, it really is in order to better serve Americans across the board, um, you know, the scientific enterprise needs to be needs to be diverse. It can't be that kind of homogenous, stale, male and pale science that we're used to seeing. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and um, you know, I want to thank you for kind of highlighting these things. Um, again, the, do you know the title of the piece? Um, it's been through a couple of revisions. Um, I don't remember the most recent one. Um, but check it out. Check, go yeah. on to, uh, you can uh, go to ASBNB Today's website. Uh, you can find John's piece. You can find all the other pieces that John has done. And um, as a reminder, you're listening to Pipettes and Politics, and we'll be back. Welcome back to Pipettes and Politics, and thanks again to John for joining us and giving us that uh, perspective on things. It was uh, really an interesting discussion to have. Um, before we close things out, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, our Hill Day. ASBMB is Hill Day. We will be um, bringing scientists to Capitol Hill on April 12th. Um, scientists in training. Scientists in training. Some, some scientists, but you know, we have undergrads, we have graduate students, we have... The full spectrum of scientists. I just want to point out that Andre is saying if you don't have those PhD letters <laughs> out of your name, you're not no, a scientist. No. That was Andre Porter. The training to be scientists. At A.N. Porter underscore. It's A.W. Corp. Yeah. A.W. Corp is, is my alias. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, forgetting that fact that Andre doesn't like young people. Um, we are uh, we're opening the process to, to invite... Uh, scientists, scientific trainees, those interested in science, to join us and be advocates on Capitol Hill. Let's talk a little bit about what that means. Um, on April 12th, ASBNB's Public Affairs Advisor Committee will be going to Capitol Hill, where we'll be talking with elected officials about the needs to invest robustly in biomedical research and the life sciences, about the impact that immigration policies can have on the scientific enterprise, um, about other issues that are really important to us. If you're interested in joining us, in coming to Washington on my dime, on eating some really good food on my dime, on staying on a, let's call it a three-star hotel on my dime, then you should probably be applying for um, for this opportunity. So I'm, in a second, I'm going to throw it over to Andre and Daniel to talk about how to apply and where to go there. But let me tell you about what we do. Um, if you're selected, you're going to come to Washington on April 11th. 
where um, you're going to check in the hotel room. We're going to have a training on how to advocate. So if you have never done this before, do not worry. We will make you an expert by the end of that training. It's going to go very well. We'll talk about kind of how the hill works, how it operates, what we talk about, kind of give you a what to expect sort of thing. Um, we'll take you out for dinner on that night. And then on the 12th, all day long, all damn day long, you'll be marching uh, through Capitol Hill, walking through the marble hallways and meeting with legislators um, from your those that represent you, those that represent others, talking about these issues. We'll wrap it up um, with kind of a post-Hill uh, post Day event where we'll have some frozen margaritas. Uh, <laughs> that's our tradition. Um, and, and then another meal. And then we will send you home on the 13th. So it is a really good all-expenses-covered opportunity for you. Um, it, you learn how to advocate. Um, you learn what science policy is all about. You meet new people. Um, I will say that two of our previous uh, employees here in the public affairs office are graduates or alumnus of our um, Hill Day process. Um, others have, have gone out to kind of use this as a stepping stone for their career. So um, um, Daniel and Andre, how do you sign up if you want to do this? So you can either follow ASBNB.org. We've been tweeting out the applications. You can go to policy.asbnb.org. Go to the policy blog. There's a post for that. You can also go to ASBNB backslash advocacy, um, click on events, and Hill Day. So the application is everywhere that you want to be. <laughs> you can check it out in all of these spaces. Um, they will close. Applications do close on February 26th. Um, so hurry up, get out there, and that way we can make our selections. And what is the application process? So it's a survey um, that you fill out with a few essay questions, um, pretty straightforward Um yeah. I, I, anything else? Yeah. Uh, so I'll, I'll I'll let you know that Daniel hasn't done a hill day before, so we're throwing I him out there. I haven't done so. an ASBNB hill day. I've done plenty of other hill days. So it's going to be his first time, just like it's going to be your first time, and we'll be gentle with everybody. Um, it is a short essay process that I just want to point out. Um, we are not looking for people to write kind of chapter and verse on things, but it's a free trip to Washington in the spring, which is a beautiful city to come to. And uh, I just want to make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. So right. short essays that let us know why you want to be involved in this, kind of what your interest is. So, um, it's also competitive. We usually have about 300 people apply. We only have 20 slots available. Um, so please get in early. Be succinct and clear and really, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, influential in your essays. And um, hopefully you'll be joining the three of us. In fact, you know what we'll do? Um, we'll record a podcast with some of the students who come That'll to be it. Fun, yeah. So you can be part of our part of our little gang when we do that. So um, with even, that, oh, are you saying even if you um, for some reason can't join us, we'll do a digital campaign um, during Hill Day, uh, in which you will join us on Twitter, social media to blast out the message online. That's right. I'm sure you're great. I'm sure if you're listening to us, you're going to be fantastic. But we can only take twenty of you. Um, the other people that are, the other, you know, 280 that apply for our Hill Day, we're going to be encouraging to do our, our virtual Hill Day in conjunction with things. We'll have more details for that as the weeks go through as well. Um, go back to policy.asbnb.org for those details. Um, our time is coming to an end. I want to thank you all for listening and for being a part of this. Um, I'm Ben Korb. Andre Porter. 
Daniel Pham. Uh, remember, we are um, onlinepolicy.asbnb.org. ASBNB is on Twitter at ASBNB. I'm on Twitter at BWCorb. Andre is... Pam Porter underscore. Daniel is... DFAM20. Thank you for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks uh, where we'll be talking about the president's budget and other really critically important things. Thank you all. This has been Pipettes and Politics. See you next time. <laughs>